Romans chapter 7. We'll be reading Romans chapter 7 verses 14 through 25 this evening. Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. This is God's word. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then On the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself to us. We pray that you would help us now to understand your word, to ingest it and digest it, and to walk according to your word. We pray for the building up of your kingdom, for the building up of this congregation. And it's in Christ's name that we make this prayer. Amen. If we turn on our TVs and watch some of the most famous TV preachers, we will hear enticing words to try to get unbelievers into the church. If we listen to these people, we would think that the Christian life is a posh life where nothing bad will ever happen to us. We will hear them telling us, God has great and wonderful plans for our life, and if your daughter gets cancer, well, that just means you didn't have enough faith. This, of course, course is nothing more than lies meant to sell books and fill pews. Never mind if they aren't born again, they're at least in church. And not only are these preachers on TV, but they're also in pulpits all around us today. However, the experiential life of Christians is often in stark contrast to how it's portrayed in many evangelical circles today. The life of the Christian is marked with the ongoing war with sin. Many think that when we come to Christ, we will live a life of perfect righteousness and obedience to God who has redeemed us. But yet the most mature Christian will tell you that they are among the most deplorable of sinners. The conversion of a Christian marks the beginning of peace with God and the beginning of a fierce internal war against sin. And oddly enough, this passage that we just read this afternoon is very controversial today 
And because of this, there are many different views regarding who Paul is talking about here. The Apostle Paul here speaks autobiographically when he writes these words. He is not speaking here of an unbeliever or a carnal Christian. He's speaking of himself and not of himself before he was an, uh, before he was a believer, but after his conversion. Paul tells us what he thought of himself before Christ in Philippians 3, and that in no way comports with what he sets forth here in this passage. Furthermore, we can easily see how Paul is speaking of his own present struggles when we simply analyze the grammar that Paul wrote this in. Paul moves from speaking in the past tense in Romans 7 verses 1 through 13 to speaking in the present tense. Listen to these phrases Paul says in verse 15, and these are just a few phrases. For what I am doing, for I am not practicing, and also I am doing the very thing I hate. These verbs are in the present tense. Paul here is plainly speaking of himself in his present state when writing this. This is in contrast to how he speaks in the verses leading up to this, and for just for demonstration in verses 10 and 11, he says, And this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. He speaks in the past tense here. So we can see here by this simple illustration that Paul is talking of his present situation when writing this. Furthermore, although Paul is speaking of himself, we should not confuse his honest self-assessment with complaining or feeling sorry for himself. Paul has written this for, the, for our encouragement and for us to better understand our sanctification process. Paul in the sixth chapter, the chapter right before this of Romans, emphatically tells us that we are free from sin. We are no longer enslaved to the cruel grips of sin, but have become alive in Jesus Christ. Our old selves have been crucified on the cross with Jesus when he bore the sins that you and I have committed before and after our conversion. Jesus became a sacrifice for the sins of all who would have faith in him, that he may take their sins as far as the east is from the west, so that we would no longer be dead in sin, but alive in Jesus Christ our Lord. And because of this, Paul is able to tell us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. And Paul also exhorts us to not allow the lust of the flesh to reign in us, but to put to death the sin that still remains. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace, Paul tells us. We have not been saved by the law, but by grace. The sin that once ruled our life has had its grip broken. We have been bought by a new master in Jesus Christ. And it is with this as the backdrop that Paul gives us an honest self-assessment of his mighty struggle with sin. Let's look back at verse 14 with me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Here, Paul makes a contrast between himself and the law of God. The law of God is spiritual, perfect, and undefiled, a reflection of God's holy character. And this is a further description of what he has already said in verse 12, which says, So then the law is holy, and the command so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good however paul and also ourselves are not perfect undefiled 
or a reflection of God's holy character. We are of the flesh, defiled by sin and contrary to perfection. Furthermore, it will help us to understand that the word that Paul uses here for flesh, sarkonos, is at times used as a metaphor to mean weak. An example of this can be found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 32, verse 8, Hezekiah encourages his men while the Assyrian army is attacking and says this in verse 8, With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles. And what is the implication here? Hezekiah is saying the Assyrians are insurmountably weak compared to God who is on the side of Judah. The Assyrians are only flesh. They are weak. And I believe that is the way that Paul is using this word here in Romans. He is in effect saying, the law is of God, but I am weak. And the phrase Paul uses here, sold into bondage to sin, must be understood in light of verse 25, which describes how the inner man serves the law of God, but the flesh serves the law of sin. Therefore, this cannot be in reference to the type of enslavement he speaks of in the previous chapter when he says in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. In this present time, we as Christians live in a time where our old nature and our new nature overlap. There was a time when Paul and ourselves were exclusively sinners, and there will be a time when we are exclusively saints. However, in this present time, right now, before we pass into glory, we are sinner and saint. A saint because of Christ's perfect righteousness being transferred to us through faith and his once-for-all sacrifice for sin, but yet still a sinner in this weak body. The new birth Christian's experience gives us peace with God, but marks the beginning of war with ourselves. Sin no longer reigns as master, but it still resides within us. Let's look now at verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. How's that for a life verse? Paul shows us this inner struggle between the new identity in Christ and with the old self. Paul analyzes himself and sees two natures warring against each other. And although Paul here is speaking of himself, he shares this knowing that it is the experience of every single born-again believer. Christians serve in newness of the Spirit, as Paul just stated in chapter 7, verse 6. Yet Paul finds in himself mixed desires. Paul's desire in light of the grand mercies and grace he has been shown seeks to honor God through obedience. Yet at the end of the day, when he examines himself, he falls so woefully short. There is a very real war war that takes place in the life of Christians. The conversion marks the beginning of lifelong battle against sin. Paul puts it as the sin within him is not welcome, but yet he struggles to cast it out. And anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time will relate to Paul here. Paul is speaking to the Christian who beats his chest and cries out to God because they have committed their besetting sin again. And you knew while you were doing it that this is evil, this is an affront to my God, and yet you still did it, but you don't want to do it. Paul here is speaking to the Christian who hates sin. And just so there's no confusion, there is no Christian who does not hate sin. 
It may vary in degrees from person to person when someone is born again. They have the heart that once loved sin taken out and a new heart is put in. One that loves God and seeks to please Him. Not as a way to gain a right standing before Him, but because of the great love He has shown us when we are at enmity against Him. Let's look at verse 16 now. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, concurs that the law is good, righteous, and holy. Therefore, he wants to obey it, but yet he finds in himself disobedience to the law. It is important to know and keep in mind why Paul is seeking to obey the law. Paul does not want to obey the law so that he may earn eternal life, for he just joyfully announced that in chapter 6, verse 23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gifts are not earned. Nor is it that Paul thinks he must continue in holiness so that he does not lose his salvation. For the entirety of Scripture speaks with one voice that we are saved by Christ's righteousness alone apart from anything we do. And to come to any conclusion that we are saved by anything we do or do not do, that person would have to read the Bible upside down in a dark room with sunglasses on. Because that is not what God has said. Paul wants to keep the law because of his gratitude for what has been freely given to him. That is new life in Christ. Paul here makes the argument saying, because I break the law and yet do not want to transgress the law, he agrees and confesses the law is good and he is wrong for transgressing it. In other words, the hatred Paul has for sin is a testimony to the goodness of the law of God. The law shows us what is pleasing to God and is our guide for how we are to live the Christian life after it has led us to Christ and showing us our sin. Let's look on to verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul now makes the logical deduction that because what he is doing is not what he wants to do, but is what he hates, he states, it is the sin that does this. Let us not think that what Paul is doing is dismissing responsibility for his actions, but instead is making the observation that he, the regenerate man, wants no part of sin. But the unwelcomed lodger, the fragments of the old self, wants to sin, and this stops Paul from keeping the law of God perfectly. It is not that there are two personalities in Paul. He's not schizophrenic. R.C. Sproul explained it this way. He said, quote, A person who lived 20 years ago in Cincinnati and now lives in Boston is still the same person. He does not behave exactly in the same manner as he did 20 years ago, but he is still affected by the influences from his past life. End quote. And also, just as I myself lived and acted in a very different way before I was converted, the old way of life that old way of life still affects me in the ways I don't want it to. So Paul may be seen here as attributing his sins to the sinful nature that still resides in him as a believer, but is still responsible for them. It wasn't another person who sinned. No, it was him, just as it is us. But it is because of this sinful nature that he struggled with sin, just as we struggle with sin. Let's look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present, but the doing of the good 
is not. Paul, in this battle, makes a profession every Christian can make. That is, that we want to live in complete obedience and conformity to God. That we want to sin no more, but yet we are weak and do not live up to our innermost desires. We can confess along with Paul that nothing good dwells in our flesh, that is, in the fragments of our old selves. Paul knows that the Holy Spirit dwells within him, but in referring to his old sinful nature, he concludes, there is nothing good. Paul further expresses himself in verses 19 and 20. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I, want, I, I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This is the same issue Paul has already told us of, but he states in an inverse manner this time. Again, we shouldn't see this as Paul trying to escape responsibility of sin, but rather he is reflecting on the inner conflict that is going on. The Paul that is being sanctified is warring against the old, unregenerate Paul who was once a Pharisee. Paul is at war with Saul. Paul recognizes that he still gives in to his old sinful desires, but despises himself so much for doing so that he almost speaks of it as if it was a different person. And verse 20 substantially repeats the same thing as verses 16 and 17. And notice also, Paul doesn't give room for pet sins that we can stroke every little bit. No, Paul is fighting against the big and the small sins alike. Paul knows that all sin, whether it be impatience or drunkenness, is a gross affront to God Almighty. William Hendrickson wrote this in regards to verse 20 in his commentary, quote, Derived from the situation as described in verse 16 is that, since Paul himself does not want to act contrary to God's will, the sins committed should basically be ascribed not to him, but to sin. It is sinful nature here and elsewhere called the flesh, which is the real culprit, the actual offender. It is that wicked squatter dwelling with Paul in the, letter's own, in the latter's own house who is at the bottom of all this iniquity. It is that intruder who so often makes it impossible for Paul to do the good that he wants to do so badly, end quote. And Paul then tells us in verses 21 through 23, I find then a principle, or the principle, that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul, in his self-reflection, analyzes himself and his actions and comes to this conclusion. He identifies a principle within himself. Paul says that evil is present within him, yet his inner man, his esso in the Greek, which can be translated as the innermost being, not only concur, concurs, but joyfully concurs with the law of God. So then this evil that is present within him wages war against his inner being that seeks to please God. What Paul is not saying is that his soul is righteous, but his flesh is evil. Paul, when he makes the distinction between his innermost being and his members, as he puts it, is simply making a distinction between the core of his being over the periphery of his being. R.C. Sproul explained it this way, quote, The peripheral power of sin is still raging and is very potent. 
But in the core of the regenerate man dwells a self that is made over in the image of God. End quote. There is a paradox in the Christian life that the more we imitate Christ in our lives, the more sin we see in ourselves. The more we kill sin, the more of it we see within ourselves. And the more we see it in ourselves, the more it drives us to Christ, to rest and to depend on him. We're all at different points in our sanctification. Perhaps you have won the battle over a besetting sin that has taken place that had, I'm sorry, perhaps you have won the battle over a besetting sin that has taken years for you to kill. If that is you, I want to encourage you to not let your guard down. Don't give the devil a chance to tempt you into falling back into the mire. Continue to starve the old man and feed the new man with the word of God, prayer, and communion. Maybe you have been fighting against sin and have experienced setback after setback. I want to encourage you, reckon yourself dead to sin. It is no longer your master. Jesus Christ is the King of kings who has bought you with a high price. Fill all your idle time with the word of God. Be diligent in attending church and partaking in communion. Be like the psalmist who said in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. If you want to sin less, read your Bible. Treasure it in your heart. Pray like you are absolutely helpless against sin, against the power of sin, because you are apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a war going on right now, and wartime is no time to kick back and relax. Woe is us if we pretend sin isn't a big deal and try to rationalize it. We must be diligent to take up the sword, which is the word of God, and put away the sin that so easily entangles us. There is a reason we are given such strong warnings against sin. There is a reason that the Apostle Paul struggled so mightily with sin. Don't play with it, flee from it, and come to the throne of grace in prayer. Pray that God would give you such a strong hatred for sin that you would never become laxed in the battle. When we have been born again, we may see, I'm sorry, when we have been born again, we may see ourselves for what we really are a helpless sinner in need of God's grace. And then we can confess like Paul in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Paul here cries out in sorrow over his sin. Paul deplores the fact that he is unable to serve God as completely and wholeheartedly as he wants to. And again, I want to quote William Henriksen because he says this so much better than I'm able to. He said, quote, the cry he utters is one of distress but not despair. As verse 25 proves, Paul suffers agony, to be sure. The wretchedness brought by strenuous exertion, that is, by trying hard but never satisfactory succeeding to live in complete harmony with God's will, but failing again and again. He is looking forward eagerly to the time when this struggle will have ended. With that in mind, he yearns to be rescued from this body of death, that is, from the body in its present condition, subject to the ravages of sin and death. He knows that as long as he lives in this present body of humiliation, the terrible struggle will be continued. But once the life in that body ceases, the state of sinless glory will commence, first for the soul and then also for the body. End quote. How great that day will be when we are free from the presence of sin. But until then, we must advance in the battle, not allowing the old self to gain ground. And Paul answers his own question in verse 25 that he just asked. Paul doesn't stop after the outcry of distress, but breaks forth in praise. 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul speaks with full assurance, knowing well that salvation has already been obtained by Jesus Christ the Savior. We, like Paul, should break forth in doxology to our merciful God who has redeemed us. This is the high-octane fuel for the soul that caused Paul to press on in the battle. Although the battle is wearisome, we can be assured that there will be a day when the battle is over and we will be free from the presence of sin, never to intrude into our thoughts and actions, and we will be in the presence of our Savior to worship Him in spirit and truth as we truly desire. Paul then concludes with these words, So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Notice the stark contrast Paul makes that the law of God is working within him to war against the law of sin. Paul is not saying, fly the white flag, surrender. He is leading by example in writing these intimate details. If any Christian could ever be sinless, it would have probably been Paul. And he tells us of this struggle. And it's not that we rejoice in the failings of another, but we do find comfort to know that the man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament struggled with sin like us. And knowing that we are not the only ones struggling to live with ourselves help us, helps us and encourages us to not despair. Because when we despair, we often isolate ourselves and fall face first into the mire. When we close out our days in prayer, when our heads hit the pillows and we reflect on the day, we all have so much to confess to God. Therefore, let us be steadfast in obeying what the author of Hebrews told us in Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be seeking to encourage each other and building each other up. It can be easy to think that we are the only ones who are struggling with sin and keep to ourselves. No Christian in any stage of sanctification, this side of glory, can truthfully say, they have come to the point that they have stopped sinning and are just coasting until Christ returns. And that is not to say that this battle is in vain. For the more we fight against sin, we will sin less and less. And furthermore, when we fall asleep in the Lord, we will be completely free from the presence of sin and how glorious that day will be. The victory is sure. It has been promised to us. Christ has already won the battle. Now I want to take a moment to issue a solemn warning to anyone who may not feel this inner battle. If your desires have not been changed to hate sin, you have not been born again. And if you have listened this far, I don't think I need to tell you what awaits you on Judgment Day. For if this is you, you are outside the kingdom of God. Dear unbeliever, please place your trust in Christ alone. Beg of Him to show you mercy to give you new life in Him. It's not an easy battle, but the struggle is worth it. In concluding this evening, I want to remind us all of a few things and give us three exhortations. Number one, if you want to write something down, write, the, write these three things down. But number one, remain alert. Think of what God said to Cain in Genesis 4-7. 
Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin is always waiting to devour us, always waiting for us to let our guard down so that it may be master over us. Think of King David, a man after God's own heart. He let his guard down for a moment and it resulted in adultery, lies, and murder. Sins that affected him for the rest of his life. Hence, we must not let our guard down. The moment we think we can let our guard down, because it has just been so long since we have ever been tempted to look at that or to do or to say that, that is the moment when we will fall face first into the dung that sin is. Therefore, be on the alert. Secondly, remain armed and ready with the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, most of us know it by heart. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So don't neglect the weapon that God has given us. For this this is for our benefit. And furthermore, if you need more reason to read your Bible, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Do you want to be more sanctified? Read your Bible. And thirdly, we must be aggressive. Don't sit back while you're being tempted to sin and wait until you commit the sin to decide that you need to put up barriers against it. Maybe you are being tempted to drink too much and become drunk. Stop drinking at all or only do so when you're with a brother and Chris, brother or sister in Christ who you have informed about this so that they can help keep you accountable. Maybe you're tempted to go to websites on the internet you know are sinful. Get rid of your computer. Get software to block those websites. Hebrews 12.1 tells us, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. We must be aggressive with sin. Don't pull punches. This is war. Remember what Jesus told us to do when things cause us to sin in Matthew 18.8 and 9? If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet than to be cast into the eternal fire. If your eyes causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. And what is Jesus' point? To be aggressive with sin. Don't rationalize it. Kill it. Finally, we cannot ever forget we have an advocate with the Father who has propitiated the wrath of God that was rightly directed towards us for our sins. Jesus Christ has taken our sins, the ones in our past, present, and future. All have already been atoned for by the blood of the Lamb of God who was crucified on the cross at Calvary. And because of this, we have bold access to the throne of God Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in in our time of help and need. In our times of temptations, God wants us to come to Him in prayer. And as this verse says, we will receive mercy and grace. Let the fuel in our tanks to live the Christian life always be gratitude for the free gift of eternal life that has been given to us. God did not need to save us. He chose to out of his love. Listen to 1 John 4.10. In this is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. After Paul wrote of his struggle with sin here in Romans 7, he writes some of the most beautiful and comforting words found in the whole Bible. And we'll, I'll end with this verse. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending Christ to be the propitiation for our sins, to take upon himself what was rightly due to us, to satisfy your justice, to save us. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us to fight this fight, Lord, that we would not become wearisome in the battle against sin, but that we would gain the upper hand, Lord, that you would strengthen us to fight against sin, that we would not ever stop or be tempted to sit back and coast. Lord, we pray that you would be with us in this coming week, that you would help us to do so. And it's in Christ's name that we make this prayer. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 544, How Bright These Glorious Spirits Shine. Number 544.